So this is the third of my four talks on the Buddha. Um, the first one being the Buddha before the Buddha, that is to say when he was um, practicing um, what is called the Bodhisattva or the Bodhisattva um, on his way to becoming the Buddha. And then the second talk was called The Consequences of Awakening. And that was um, all about the, uh, the actual enlightenment experience and the consequences of that. And now this talk is called The Buddha Was Born As We Are Born. Although I often think it should be The Buddha Was Born As We Were Born. Um, but that's the way Sangharakshita Bhante put it in the Threefold Puja. The Buddha was born as we are born in the present tense. Interestingly, the next line is the Buddha, no, what the Buddha attained, we too can attain. So this talk is about the Buddha, the Buddha, um, uh, after his enlightenment, the awakened one. Um, and what I'm going to try to do in this talk is get a bit closer to him as a man, as a person. Sangharakshita has given a very interesting distinction between what he called the bearer of the archetype and the exemplar of the ideal. Um, let's begin with the exemplar of the ideal. Um, so this is where you know someone well, uh, let's say he's an order member that you know and you've seen quite a bit of him so that you actually know him as a person. You know he or she has got some very good qualities which you admire and respect. Uh, you also know that, that they have a few faults as well, um, things that could be improved. Uh, but still, you know, they're a mixed bag like most of us are, well, all of us, um, but you respect them and admire them. So they exemplify for you the ideal. Um, here, it's not the ideal of Buddhahood that they exemplify, of course, it's the ideal of um, practicing the path to Buddhahood. And then the other one is the bearer of the archetype. And the bearer of the archetype, um, well, bears the archetype of either awakening or um, bodhisattvahood. And with this one, you don't, they, they, you don't really know that person as a person. In fact, they may not even be a person. Um, but if they are a person, you, you don't know them well enough to know um, their qualities as a real life human being. And of course, you don't know any of their uh, faults. So uh, an example of this, a very good example of uh, the bearer of the archetype, I think, is the Dalai Lama, um, who's very famous. And uh, nearly everyone who knows about the Dalai Lama thinks he's great. They, you know, he's a much loved figure. But of course, the, we don't know him. Uh, he looks great, doesn't he, uh, on camera and so on, but we, we don't know what he's like. We don't know if he's got any faults. Um, he may have, but if he has, we don't know them. So we don't know him as a person. So he's kind of like distant from us. So the bearer of the archetype is 
someone who bears the archetype of awakening or the path to awakening, but they're an archetypal figure for us. They're not a human being for us, and they're not a person. Um, so these uh, two categories are very, very interesting, I think. And um, the Buddha, of course, for us is the bearer of the archetype. He bears the archetype of Buddhahood. Uh, because he lived two and a half thousand years ago in India. We, we, no way can we really know him. But what I want to do in this talk is try, if we can, to get a bit closer to him as a human being, a man, a person. And it's quite hard to do that. Um, but uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at just a few passages from the Pali Canon, uh, mainly the Sutta Pitaka, um, uh, and see if we can get just a bit closer to him. It's quite hard to do that because of the formulation of the Pali Canon. They're actually quite formulaic. Um, it's quite hard to get a sense of the Buddha as a real human being through them. Uh, but still, if we, if we really look carefully, um, we can sort of glimpse him through a glass darkly as it were, and just get glimpses of him as a real human being. There's something else I wanted to say about that. Oh yeah, uh, the scholar and practitioner Reginald Gray made a very good point in his book, Buddhist Saints in India. Saints in this uh, sense are enlightened beings, um, Buddhist saints in India. Um, he said that uh, there are different ways of reading the texts, let's say the Pali Canon, and the, the way most of us read the Pali Canon, if we read it at all, of course, which many people don't, but if we do read the Pali Canon or any Buddhist text, we're looking for teachings. But there's another way of reading the Pali Canon, which is looking for saints, to use Reginald Gray's um, phraseology here, um, looking for people. And uh, the way I often read the Pali Canon is I'm looking for teachings, of course, but I'm also looking out for the Buddha. I'm looking out for the human being, um, the person, how he behaves, how he teaches, of course, but also how he behaves. So, as I say, I've picked a few suttas from the Pali Canon, and I'm going to really do little commentaries on each one of them. And I'm going to begin with... Um, a sutta from the Majjhima Nikaya called the Datu Vibhanga Sutta. I'll give you the number of that just in case you want to look it up yourself later. Um, it's number 140 in the Majjhima Nikaya. And I'm going to read you bits and then I'll talk about each part to you. So it begins, thus have I heard, on one occasion, the Blessed One, Blessed One is a translation of Bhagavat, um, and this is what the Buddha, his main title in the Pali Canon is the Bhagavan rather than the Buddha. He was wandering in the Magadan country and eventually arrived at Rajagaha. There he went to the potter, Bhagava, and said to him, If it is not inconvenient for you, Bhagava, I will stay one night in your workshop. So already, um, this is, uh, to me, quite a surprising sutta because it's obvious that the Buddha is alone. Now, we know that before he became the Buddha, uh, when he was striving to become the Buddha, he spent a lot of time on his own. But 
after his enlightenment, when he had disciples, he, he's nearly always with other people, with, with mainly with the other bhikkhus. He's very, very seldom do you find him alone. So this is out of the ordinary. He's on his own. So we can just imagine him wandering as the Buddha, wandering alone through India, not with a whole bunch of bhikkhus following him, not always anyway. So here he is on his own and he needs somewhere to stay for the night. And so he's come to this potter's workshop and it seems to be um, common for wanderers to stay in such workshops overnight. So he asks him, if it is not inconvenient for you, Bhagavad, I will stay one night in your workshop. So um, he's asking him, and he's very polite, if it is not inconvenient for you, may I stay in your workshop for one night? So he's very polite. And um, here's uh, Bhagavad's reply. It is not inconvenient for me, Venerable Sir, but there is a homeless one already staying there. If he agrees, then stay as long as you like, Venerable Sir. So um, Bhagava, the, the potter, doesn't know that this is the Buddha. He's just yet another wanderer. So the Buddha here is kind of anonymous. Um, he doesn't know, Bhagava doesn't know who he is. And because he doesn't know he's the Buddha, he doesn't know he's like a, a well-known and famous uh, teacher, he treats him as he would treat any other wanderer. He's polite to him, but he doesn't give him priority over the person who's already in there. So he goes and asks him, um, can I stay? So there's more to it than this. So then the text tells us now there was a clansman, a clansman, I don't know what that translates at, but um, uh, we'll see what that means in a moment. A clansman named Pukusati, who had gone forth from the home life into homelessness out of faith in the Blessed One, the Bhagavad, the Buddha. And on that occasion, he was already staying in the potter's workshop. So that's who was in the potter's workshop, one of the Buddha's disciples. So then the Blessed One went to the Venerable Pukusati and said to him, if it is not inconvenient for you, Bhikkhu, I will stay one night in your workshop. So here's the Buddha wanting to stay in this workshop. And one of his disciples is already in there. But the Buddha doesn't uh, stand on ceremony. I, I, suppose, I can't think of what I'm trying to say here. He doesn't pull rank. He's polite to him too. If it is not inconvenient for you, I will stay here with you. So this is lovely, isn't it? We're getting a real sense of the Buddha and his politeness, uh, his, in a way, his um, modesty, his humility. So, Pukusati replies, the potter's workshop is large enough, friend. Let the venerable one stay as long as he likes. So now we've got the Buddha staying overnight in the potter's workshop with one of his disciples, Pukusati. And Pukusati doesn't know that this is the Buddha. So then the Blessed One entered the potter's workshop. He hadn't even entered at that point. He's still standing outside the door politely. 
but now he enters. He prepared a spread of grass at one end of it and sat down, folding his legs crosswise, setting his body erect and establishing mindfulness in front of him. So then the Buddha stays most of the night in that meditation posture, meditating throughout the night. And the text tells us that Pukusati did the same. So there they are, the Buddha and Pukusati, one of his disciples who doesn't know that this is the Buddha, and they're meditating through the night together. So after a while, the Blessed One thought, this clansman, this bhikkhu, conducts himself in a way that inspires confidence or faith. Suppose I were to question him. So he asked the Venerable Pukusati, under whom have you gone forth, bhikkhu? Who is your teacher? Whose dharma do you profess? Now, this is very interesting because the Buddha knows that this is a bhikkhu. He knows that his teacher is himself, the Buddha, but he's not letting on to Pukusati that he knows that. Now, what I, I like about this is um, I think the Buddha is being humorous now. He's making the most of what is already quite a funny situation and he's making the most of it. He's not letting on to Pukusati that here's his teacher. This is the Buddha with him. Whose Dharma do you profess? And then Pukusati answers, friend, there is the recluse Gotama, the son of the Shakyans who went forth from the Shakyan clan. Now, a good report of the Buddha Gotama has been spread to this effect. That blessed one is accomplished, fully enlightened. Now, this is a formula uh, and it's the first part of the Tiratna Vandana, the, um, the Buddha Vandana. So I, I won't go through all that, but it, it's quite nice. And then after having done that, he says, I have gone forth under that blessed one. That blessed one is my teacher. I profess the Dharma of that blessed one. So then the Buddha says, but Bhikkhu, where is that blessed one? Accomplished and fully enlightened, now living. Where is he? You know, he's asking Pukusati, and of course the Buddha knows very well that he's right here, but Pukusati doesn't know that, so he's continuing the joke. Um, I should say, actually, that um, it's quite hard to um, realize that sometimes the Buddha's joking because of the style of the Pali canon. It's a bit like reading a Shakespeare play, and there's a lot of jokes in Shakespeare's plays, but you don't realize they're jokes because you don't get them because they're, they're not topical. And so you have to be told in the footnotes that this is a joke, you're supposed to laugh now. And um, the scholar um, Gombrich, Richard Gombrich, has made this point that the Buddha was very often humorous, but people don't realize that the Buddha was being humorous because of the way the Pali can is written. So um, he's asking him, where is he? Uh, and Pukusati answers, there is, friend, a city in the northern country named Sarvati. The Blessed One, accomplished and fully enlightened, is now living there. Well, he's wrong about that, obviously. So then the Buddha says, but Bhikkhu, have you ever seen that Blessed One before? 
Would you recognize him if you saw him, knowing full well that he wouldn't? And Pukusati says, no, friend, I have never seen that blessed one before, nor would I recognize him if I saw him. So this is the situation that Pukusati is in. He's with the Buddha, but he doesn't know it's the Buddha. And the Buddha's making the most of this humorous situation. So, um, so then the Buddha decides to teach him. He says, uh, Bhikkhu, I will teach you the Dhamma. Listen and attend closely to what I shall say. And Pukusati, being very modest, says, yes, friend. So then the Buddha teaches him. Now, it's a long teaching. It goes on for a number of pages. Basically, he teaches him how to do the practice, the six element practice. Um, so that goes on for a while, you know, probably a few hours or at least an hour or so. <clears throat> then what happens at the end of that? Um, the Venerable Pukusati realizes, towards the end of that teaching, he realizes this is the Buddha himself sitting with me and teaching me. He says, indeed, the teacher has come to me. The sublime one has come to me. The fully enlightened one has come to me. Then he rose from his seat, arranged his upper robe over one shoulder and prostrating himself um, with his head at the blessed one's feet, he said, Venerable Sir, a transgression overcame me in that like a fool, confused and blundering, I presumed to address the blessed one as friend. Venerable Sir, may the blessed one forgive my transgression, seen as such for the sake of restraint in the future. Now what he's confessing to is his mode of address to the Buddha. Now you're supposed to call the Buddha Bhagavan. And what you call your you know, other members of the, the bhikkhu community is abuso, which means friend. Um, but anybody you look up to and respect, actually not just the Buddha, but you know, your teachers, you, you call them Bhagavan. Um, so to call the Buddha abuso is, um, not exactly insulting, but it's not respectful enough. And he's called him Abuso, friend, a number of times. So he's confessing that. What, what does the Buddha do? He says, surely, Bhikkhu, a transgression overcame you, in that like a fool, confused and blundering, you presume to address me as friend. But since you see your transgression as such, and make amends in accordance with the Dhamma, we forgive you. For it is growth in the noble one's discipline when one sees one's transgression as such, make amends in accordance with the Dharma and undertakes restraint in the future. So, um, hold on a minute. Something's happened to my screen here. Uh, I don't know what's happened. Um, Ah, oh, you're still with me. That's good. Okay. Um, what happens next is that uh, the bhikkhu, uh, bhikkhu, 
what do they call him, Pukusati. Um, unfortunately, soon after that, he was uh, gored by a bull, as so many bhikkhus seem to have done. Uh, but never mind that. Um, so that's the Buddha and Pukusati. And I, I like that text partly because of the humor of the Buddha, but also because it's so intimate, uh, because the Buddha is just with this man on his own. And you, I, at least I get a sense of him as a person. Now, the next one I want to talk about is uh, very different. It concerns a man called Nigroda, who's uh, a teacher from another tradition, well, his own tradition, I think. And it begin, it, this is from the, um, not the Majjhima Nikaya, but the Diga Nikaya, the long suttas of the Buddha. And it's number 25. And it's called the Udambarika Sihanada Sutta. Uh, Udambarika is the place, and Sihanada is the lion's roar. So it's the lion's roar of the Buddha at Udambarika. And it begins with um, uh, Nigroda and his followers uh, staying in Udambarika. And uh, Nigroda is boasting to his followers that when he meets the Buddha, he's going to make mincemeat of him. Um, let's see if I can find the actual... Um, Well, I can't find it right now, but he's, um, he's going to make him look very foolish when he meets him in discussion. And what's interesting about this text is the Buddha picks that up uh, on the ether, as it were. He, he knows that that's happening. So he goes to Nigroda on purpose. He, he seeks him out to have the conversation that Nigroda wanted to have. Uh, oh, here it is. He says... Um, um, if the ascetic were to come to this assembly, we, meaning me, would baffle him with a single question. We would knock him over like an empty pot. So that's important to remember that for a bit later on. So what happens is um, the Buddha seeks him out. And um, uh, Nigroda tries to do that with him, but he, of course he doesn't succeed. And instead, the Buddha begins to teach Nigroda, but he teaches him in a very interesting way because um, uh, he says, Nigroda, what was the subject of your conversation now? What just now? What have I interrupted? And Nigroda replies and he, he wants to know how the Buddha teaches his disciples and how his disciples practice. And the Buddha says, Nigroda, it is hard for you holding different views, being of different inclinations and subject to different influences, following a different teacher to understand the doctrine which I teach my disciples. So, he said, ask me about your own teaching, about your own extreme austerity, and uh, we'll have a conversation about that. And uh, the, the Nigroda's followers were really impressed by that, and they say to themselves, oh, it's wonderful, it's marvellous. How great are the powers of the ascetic Gosama in holding back with his own theories and inviting others to discuss theirs. So that's very interesting. He decides not to just give him a talk about his own teachings, but to talk about um, Nigroda's teachings and discuss that. So they do that for a while. 
And then, um, uh, after that, the Buddha says, um, but Reverend Nigroda, you were going to baffle me with a single question and knock me over like an empty pot. So what happened? And at these words, Nigroda was silent and upset. His shoulders drooped, he hung his head and sat there downcast and bewildered. So, um, the Buddha then says to him, Nigroda, you are an intelligent man of mature years. Did it never occur to you to think the Blessed One is enlightened and teaches a doctrine of enlightenment? He is calm and teaches a doctrine of calm. He has gone beyond and teaches a doctrine of going beyond. He has gained Nibbana and teaches a doctrine for the gain of, gaining of Nibbana. And Nigroda said to him, Transgression overcame me, Lord. Foolish, blind and evil as I was, that I spoke thus of the Lord. May the Lord accept my confession of this fault, that I may restrain, my, may restrain myself in the future. And the, so he's confessing his fault, just as Pukusati confessed his fault, of his Nigroda's fault is a very different kind of fault, of course. And uh, Nigroda, um, uh, and the Buddha says, indeed, Nigroda, transgression overcame you when through folly, blindness, and evil, you spoke of me thus. But since you recognize the, trans the nature of your transgression and make amends as is right, we accept your confession. For Nigroda, it is a mark of progress in the discipline of the noble ones. If anyone recognizes the nature of his transgression and make, makes amends as is right, restraining himself for the future. So um, uh, Nigroda confesses, and he really does have something to confess. He's been very arrogant and he's treated the Buddha badly, but the Buddha forgives him for that. And then the Buddha says something very interesting. He says, but Nigroda, I tell you this, let an intelligent man come to me who is sincere, honest, and straightforward, and I will instruct him. So this is not so much about the, the Buddha himself, but more the kind of person that the Buddha wants to speak to. Someone who's intelligent. That doesn't, the, the word is vinyu. Uh, which can also mean learned, but in this case it doesn't mean learned because we know that the Buddha taught many, many people who are not actually learned, they weren't scholars, but it means intelligence. Uh, just, you know, um, well, intelligence. Uh, Sankarakshita once uh, uh, defined intelligence as the creative use of concepts. Um, so an intelligent man comes to me who is sincere, honest, and straightforward. And each one of those Pali words, which I looked at in some detail a few years ago, means more or less the same thing. And you could say that intelligence and um, sincerity, honesty, straightforward are um, the head and the heart. Um, so this is how we should be as uh, disciples. This is a really good teaching for us disciples of the Buddha. We need to be intelligent. And we also need to be sincere, honest, and straightforward. That's, what the, that's all the Buddha expects of a teaching. And he says, 
and I will instruct him, I will teach him Dharma. And if he practices what he is taught, then within seven years, he'll gain enlightenment. Which might come as a surprise to you, but hold on, because he goes further. He says, well, let alone seven years, in six years, in five, four, three, two, one year, seven months, six, five, four, three, two, one month, half a month, let alone half a month, in seven days, he can gain enlightenment. Now, he hasn't finished with Nigroda, because, uh, of course, the Buddha is talking to Nigroda and his followers, and the Buddha wants to clear up uh, a potential misunderstanding. And he says, um, Nigroda, you may think that I'm teaching you, I've, I've sought you out and I've got into conversation with you and I've taught you with all your followers present. You may think that I'm trying to get more disciples. Uh, but you shouldn't regard, you sh shouldn't think of it like that. I'm not trying to get more disciples. Um, let him who is your teacher remain your teacher. Or you may think that I want you to abandon your own rules, but you mustn't think in that, in that way because I'm, you know, I'm quite happy for you to carry on in your own way in your own, with your own rules. Um, you may think that I want you to abandon your way of life. No, I don't. You can carry on with your way of life. You may think that I want you to establish you in the doing of things that according to my teaching are wrong. But I don't think that. Let those things that you consider wrong continue to be so considered. Or you may think, I want, you, I want to draw you away from things that according to your teaching, I, my teaching are good and so on. But you should not regard it like that. Let whatever can you consider to be right to con continue to consider that to be right. I don't speak for any of those reasons. And then he gives his real reason for teaching. There are Nigroda, unwholesome or unskillful things that have not been abandoned and they conduce to rebirth. They're fearful, productive of pain painful results in the future. It is for the abandonment of these things that I teach the Dharma. If you practice accordingly, these tainted things will be abandoned and the things that make for purification will develop and grow. And you will all attain, all of you, attain to and dwell in this very life by your very own insight and realization in the fullness of perfected wisdom. So this is very interesting and I'm not going to discuss this because this is one of the questions that you'll be discussing uh, after this talk. So um, that's the uh, Udambarika Sihanada Sutta and um, the Buddha was quite hard on uh, Nigroda although also quite kind with him but um, one of the things that uh, I want to say is that people who don't read the Pali Canon they don't get to know what the Buddha's really like they have a very, very sketchy idea of the Buddha. And, and basically, people who don't read what the Buddha's like, they, they imagine the Buddha to be like a really nice guy, like a transcendentally nice guy. And often he is a very nice guy, very kind, very, as we heard from the Pukusati Sutta, the, the, the Buddha was very humble, uh, very um, 
considerate of other people and so on. And he was all of those things. But he has another side as well, which is what I want to talk about now. He could be really, really fierce with people. Um, and this comes across when he's talking sometimes to uh, followers or teachers from other um, spiritual traditions and Brahmins and with his own bhikkhu disciples. Uh, I'll just say a couple of words about Brahmins. Um, very often uh, a Brahmin will be rather rude to the Buddha. They, they like the Broda, they wanted to show the Buddha up, they wanted to trip him up. Um, and so in doing that, they were rather rude to him. And there's one lovely section. I was unable to find it because, you know, I read the Pali Canon quite a bit and I remember things, but I can't remember exactly where to find it. But there was one time where the Buddha was in a conversation with a, a Brahmin. And the Brahmin was being rather rude to him, but the Brahmin asked him a question and the Buddha replied. He said, even though you've been rather rude to me, I will answer your question. So here he, he just lets the Brahmin know that I, I picked up on that. You've been rather rude to me, which is out of order, but still I'll answer your question. Uh, but what I want to talk about now for a little while is how he, uh, um, how he was with his own disciples. That's specifically the, the, the bhikkhu disciples, because obviously there were times when he was very kind and so on. But um, there were times when he was really hard with them. And there was one time when... Uh, there was this man called Arita, A-R-R-I-T-H-A, who had got the teaching wrong, and he was teaching uh, his misunderstanding of the teaching. And this came to the uh, notice of some of the other bhikkhus. And then they went to see the Buddha and said, look, Arita's teaching the teaching wrong. And so the Buddha asked Arita to come to him. And the first thing the Buddha does is to check out that he's got his facts right. Um, he says to him, um, uh, uh, Arita, is it true that the following pernicious view has arisen in you? And he describes what he's heard. I won't tell you what it is. Um, and Arita says, exactly so, Venerable Sir. As I understand the Dharma taught by the Blessed One, blah, blah, blah. And the Buddha says, misguided man. Now, misguided man, this is uh, um, Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation. But um, other translators here have, um, you foolish man, you foolish man. To whom have you ever known me to teach the Dharma in that way? Misguided man, in many discourses, have I not stated the opposite? It goes on like that for a while. Um, but you, misguided man or foolish man, have misrepresented me by your wrong grasp and injured yourself and stored up much demerit. For this will lead you to your harm and suffering for a long time. So he's really telling him off for this. Uh, but he's doing it for his own good because as long as he's got that view and as long as he's teaching that misunderstanding, then he's hurting himself as well as other people. And uh, when this was said, the text tells us, the Bhikkhu Arita formally uh, uh, sat silent 
dismayed, with shoulders drooping and head down, glum. <laughs> That's lovely, isn't it? Glum and without response. But the Buddha, even then, doesn't let him off. He says, misguided man, you will be recognized by your own pernicious view. And then he starts talking to the, the other bhikkhus and um, telling the bhikkhus that, that uh, Aritu was wrong. So he's quite hard on him. And there's another one, uh, the Badali Sutta. Uh, that was um, the Agala Kudupama Sutta, the simile of the snake, which is number 134 in the Nikaya. But um, there's another one here, which is to Badali, who is another um, bhikkhu called Badali, and it's number 65 in the Nikaya, the Badali Sutta. And what happens here is that the Buddha um, decides he's not going to eat um, after his you know, midday meal, and he thinks it's a good idea if the other bhikkhus do the same. He says, I eat in a single section, session. By so doing, I am free from illness and affliction, and I enjoy health, strength, and a comfortable abiding. Come, bhikkhus, eat at a single section, a uh, single session. So he's asking them to do the same. So, when this was said, the Venerable Badali told the Blessed One, I'm not willing to do that. I'm not willing to eat at a single session. For, if I were to do so, I might have worry and anxiety about it. Uh, why he's worried and anxious about that, we don't need to inquire. So, the Buddha, um, he doesn't just say, well, you've got to. He, he tries to help him. He says, uh, um, then Badali, eat one part there where you are invited uh, by someone for a meal and bring away another part to eat. By eating in that way, you maintain yourself. So it gives him um, a compromised situation where he doesn't have to eat all in one go. He can eat one bit there and one bit, um, bit later. But, but Badali says, um, no, I, I'm not willing to do that. So... The text tells us that when this training precept was being made known by the Blessed One, the Venerable Badali publicly declared to the Sangha of Bhikkhus his, his unwillingness to undertake the training. So then Badali avoided the Buddha for the whole of the rainy season, for the whole three months of the rainy season, he avoided the Buddha. But towards the end of the rainy season, uh, Badali's friends, the other Bhikkhus, said, um, um, look, the, the Buddha's soon going to set out wandering. You know, the end of the rainy season is coming and he's soon going to go. And uh, why don't you, um, I'm just trying to find it now. Yes, here we are. Uh, please, please, friend Badali, give proper attention to your declaration that he's not going to do what the Buddha asked him. Do not let it become more difficult for you later on. So, he, over those three months, the uh, Badali has obviously, obviously had a bit of time to think about it. So he says, yes. And he went to the Buddha, paid homage to him, and sat down at one side and said, Venerable Sir, a transgression overcame me, in that, like a fool, confused and blundering, when a training precept was being made known by the Blessed One, I publicly declared in the Sangha of Bhikkhus my unwillingness to undertake the training. 
please forgive me. And the Buddha says, surely, Padali, a transgression overcame you, etc., etc. But, Padali, this circumstance was not recognized by you. What you haven't taken into account is that when you publicly declared that you weren't going to follow one of my teachings, all the bhikkhus round about knew that you were disobeying me, that you weren't going to follow my teaching. And this was also not recognized by you. Um, uh, many bhikkhunis heard that too, and they also heard that one of my bhikkhu disciples was refusing to take up one of my teachings. And then he goes, he says, men lay followers, women lay followers. Um, also, all my lay followers, they heard also that you refused to follow my teaching. And then many recluses and Brahmins of other sects, they too heard that you were not going to follow my teaching. And the idea here is that what do you think people felt about that? All these people, you made clear to everyone that you, you were one of my disciples, you weren't going to follow my teaching. What do you think people made of that? So he really trawls him through the coals, as the saying goes. He doesn't let him off, even though Vidali uh, has confessed his fault. The Buddha's making it clear to him that there's more to it than you saw. And he, so that he can really confess the whole of his fault, not just the bit that he saw there. So that's quite hard, isn't it? Um, interesting thing here is that uh, you've, you've now, uh, we've looked at three people who are confessing their fault. Pukusati, the really nice bhikkhu, who's a good follower of the Buddha, who simply confessed that he called him friend instead of Bhagavad. And then Nigroda, who's not one of the Buddha's disciples, who confessed that he wanted to make the Buddha look foolish, and he tried to, but failed. And then uh, Arita and Badali, um, two of the Buddha's bhikkhus, who, um, one of them who got his teaching wrong, and the other one who um, refused to follow one of his teaching. In each one of those, four people uh, had to confess their faults. So this is a big thing, isn't it? Uh, to confess one's faults. Okay, uh, and time's getting on, so I'm going to finish with another sutta. This actually isn't a sutta, this comes from the... Um, the uh, Vinaya Pitika, which is the book of the rules. And uh, in that book, it's not just rules, you get lovely stories there. And uh, you get the stories from which the rules have come. And uh, many of you will know this story already because uh, Sangharachita gave a, a talk to the order, which was as a commentary on this very passage. So I don't need to say very much about it. I just want to... Um, point your attention to it, because in my view, it's a very, very important lecture. In, in Sangrachita's view, it was very important too. And it's a very important passage from the life of the Buddha. So, now at that time, a certain brother, a bhikkhu, was suffering from dysentery and lay where he had fallen down in his own excrement. And the exalted one was going his rounds of the lodgings, with the venerable Ananda in attendance. So here the, the, uh, the bhikkhus are staying somewhere and the Buddha is going round and saying hello to everyone. 
going his rounds of the residences, residences as it's called, but he's just, you know, saying hello, maybe good morning to everyone, how are you? And uh, with the venerable Ananda in attendance, his close friend Ananda, and they came to the lodging of that brother, that bhikkhu, who is dysentery and he's actually fallen down in his own shit. Now, the, the exalted one saw that brother lying where he had fallen in his own excrement, and seeing him, he went towards him, came to him and said, brother, what ails you? So here, here's the Buddha going around uh, all these little huts, I presume, and no one else has done that. So any of the Buddha has done that. And he, he goes right to what he sees him lying there and he thinks there's something wrong with this bhikkhu. So he goes right up there. Um, and he asks him, what's wrong with you? And he says, I have dysentery, Lord. So then the Buddha asks, but is there anyone taking care of you, brother? Is there anyone else looking after you? No, Lord. So then the Buddha asks, why? Why aren't the other, why aren't your brothers in the Dharma life taking care of you? And his answer is really shocking, really. Well, it's shocking enough that no one else is taking care of him, but his answer is really shocking. I am useless to the brethren, Lord. Therefore, the brethren do not take care of me. And Banshee makes very much of that in his lecture, so I, I, I very much recommend that you listen to that lecture. But then what does the Buddha do after questioning him? Then the Exalted One, the Exalted One is another translation of Bhagavad, uh, said to the Venerable Ananda, go Ananda and fetch water, we will wash this brother. Ananda goes, comes back with water. Um, Ananda pours the water out and while the venerable Ananda washed that brother all over. Um, oh no, the exalted one, the Buddha poured the water and uh, Ananda washed the brother all over. Then the exalted one, taking him by the head and, the venerable, and Ananda taking him by the feet, Together, they laid him on the bed. So they picked him up, the Buddha at the, the, at the man's shoulders and under his feet, and they put him on the bed. So this is uh, a wonderful glimpse of the Buddha here through a glass darkly, that the Buddha is actually looking after someone in a very practical sense. He doesn't call other bhikkhus and say, look, you need to look after this, this man. He and Ananda do it. They do the dirty work themselves. So, having done that and made sure that he's okay, the exalted one in this connection and on this occasion gathered the order of brethren together and questioned the brethren, saying, Brethren, bhikkhus, is there such and such a lodging? Is there in such and such a lodging a bhikkhu who is sick? And they answer, There is Lord. And what ails that brother? Why is he sick? Lord, that brother has dysentery. But brethren, but brethren, is there anyone taking care of him? No, Lord. Why not? Why don't you take care of him? And then they, something, they say something really, really shameful. And again, Bante makes a lot of this in his talk. That brother is useless to the brethren, Lord. That is why the brethren do not take care of him. So this is the story. And... Um, so this is really, really important that uh, this is the case with many people, isn't it? That they only 
look after people who are useful to them and they don't bother with people who are useless to them and this man is useless to the brethren exactly what that means we don't know maybe he's not a good bhikkhu in some ways maybe he's not a good teacher we, we don't know why he's considered to be useless but then here's the teacher the buddha then says brethren you have no mother and no father to take care of you if you don't take care of each other who else i ask you will do so brethren he who would wait on me let him wait on the sick so if you if you look after me if you ever look after me then you should look after the other your brothers in the brothers and sisters in the spiritual life if you have a teacher let your teacher take care of him so long as he is alive or wait for his recovery etc etc if you have a tutor or a lodger disciple or a fellow lodger or a fellow disciple you should take care of him and wait for his recovery and then then comes the rule if no one takes care of that person it should be reckoned an offense so there's the buddha just really getting his hands dirty looking after someone cleaning the shit off him picking him up putting him in his bed making sure he's got what he needs before he gives the teaching so i think that's probably uh enough for today uh just to maybe finish with um just a couple of things um sometimes we glimpse the buddha through somebody else's eyes and of course we we do that through the buddhist disciples eyes and one of the disciples is pingya we know of pingya's praises to the buddha which mo most of us know that very well so i'm not going to go into that now except to say that pingya was uh an old man and uh towards the end of his life he met the buddha and he was really really delighted to meet him and it's that their relationship between them is really really delightful and of course ananda uh, the buddha's closest friend uh, spent the last 20 years of their lives together and when the buddha did die when he entered parinirvana again this is well known the buddha was found weeping and uh, the buddha asked someone to bring the armor to him and he said uh, why are you weeping he said the buddha who is so kind to me is going to die so that, that's what the buddha that's ananda's main um impression of the buddha not that he was very wise very clever etc etc but he was so kind to me i'm going to lose this man who is so kind to me um we get this of course with the that last story and also a, a little bit with the first story his kindness but i'm going to end with a, a sutta that i found uh, a little while ago it's the first one in the kanda samyutta from the samyutta nikaya and it is called the nakala pitu sutta and it concerns an old man an old and an ill man called nakala pitu who goes to see the buddha and he says to the buddha look i'm old and i'm ill so can you give me a teaching which uh, suits me who is old and ill and so the buddha does he gives him a teaching suiting a man who is old and ill and i, I won't tell you what that teaching is for now because uh, i want to tell you what happens afterwards so the buddha gives him the teaching and then they part company they go their own separate ways but a little bit later Sariputta, uh, one of the Buddha's main disciples, um, comes along and he sees Nakala Pitu and he says, Oh, you look really bright. Your skin is like golden, shining. 
has the Buddha just been teaching you? He guesses right, the Buddha's just been teaching you. And uh, Nakala Pitu uh, replies, yes. But he says it in a certain way, which is absolutely beautiful. He says, yes, the Bhagavan has just anointed me with the, um, the ambrosia of the deathless. The Bhagavan has just anointed me or sprinkled me with the deathless. So the deathless, the, uh, the ambrosia of the deathless is uh, amatar. Amatar is, um, uh, well, matter means death and ah, matar means no death or the undying or the deathless. Um, and uh, Nakala Pitu feels that he's been sprinkled with the deathless. And the reason why some translators have the ambrosia of the deathless is because Amatar or Amrita in Sanskrit uh, is the ambrosia of the gods. It's the ambrosia of the deathless. It's, it's immortality, basically. But of course, the Buddha didn't teach immortality, but he taught uh, the way to beyond birth and death. But the, the word I want to finish with here is a word that's translated as either sprinkled or anointed, which is abisito. Abisito. Um, and it's also sometimes translated as consecrated. And it's to do with um, a king. Uh, a king, when, they're, uh, un, uh, when, when they have the crown put on them, or when they're consecrated as king, they're anointed with, um, well, I suppose, uh, king, kingship. kingship. They, uh, they, the whole ceremony is to do with the consecration of the king. So it's a, it's a kind of regal kind of um, metaphor. But here, it's uh, anointed or sprinkled or consecrated with the deathless. And uh, it's a beautiful image. And I just want to finish with the, what happens uh, uh, in, in ordination. In, in the, I think the private and the public both have it, as far as I remember. But uh, the ordinand, the person who um, ordains you, now that's the person who's getting ordained, but the person who ordains you, your preceptor, at some point they have the, um, the vase, uh, what's it called now? The, um, the vase, the initiation vase, initiation, uh, abisito. And at some point, they, it has water in them. They sprinkle water on the crown of your head. And this is the sprinkling or the anointing of that disciple with the deathless. And of course, Abi Sito, uh, when I say of course, well, I don't really mean of course, but um, later on in, in uh, Tantric Buddhism, in the Vajrayana, you get the idea of Abhishekha, which is the Tantric initiation into a certain... Um, Buddha or Bodhisattva. So Abhishekha comes from this idea of Abhisito. So that's all I'm going to say for now.